Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. Collective coding that is uh, embedded in all language, and we also have our own personal associations that affect it. So it's, you know, ideally we're using language that is consistently uplifting us and inspiring us. And yes, like for me personally, I, I, I will not identify with any anti because anti, you know, as we learn through Dr. David Hawkins work in power versus force, all anti does is empower and magnify any word that it is modifying. That was Danny Katz, a journalist, podcaster, artist, evolutionary change agent, and quantum languaging consultant. Danny loves hot springs, fragrant blooming things, and dangling participles, and she currently lives in the middle of a giant black question mark on a magical hilltop straddling a handful of alternate dimensions. And we'll be right back with my conversation with Danny Katz after this word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now let's get back to the show. And I'm back with Danny Katz. Danny, welcome to Post Woke. Thanks, Mickey. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I love when I'm introduced to someone via another podcast, and then I'm able to have a conversation like this with them like a week or two afterwards. I just love when this works out because it's like, I feel like I should have known your work all along, and now I'm crash coursing it and and getting the opportunity to go right to the source. And um, I, I, I'm, through my research, I'm thinking we can go in a million directions, but I'm going to Give us a starting point and then trust you to go from there. In an interview you did with Gary Null, you mentioned the concept existential validity. And you said, um, if I claim to be an anti-sexist, then I need sexism so that I can be on purpose every day. Everything will be filtered through a mind that has been programmed to be an anti-sexist mind. And you went on to say anti-sexism gives us more sexism. Anti-racism gives us more racism. I would really love for you to go a little deeper and elaborate on this concept and of existential validity. Yeah, sure. That's a great, great question. Great place to start. So, uh, you know, as you know, I teach people how language programs consciousness and programs reality. And so when I'm leading people through those steps, uh, we break down what is language and how does it function? Because I think most of us are taught that language is only a tool for communication when in fact it does so much more. So existential validator is one of the primary tools of language where we know something exists because it has a word that represents that thing. Um, so that's what I meant in terms of words bestowing existential validity on things. Okay. And the more that we use those words, the more we cast our vote for the existence of these things in our reality construct. Um, in terms of identity, so identity is one of 
the weapons of enslavement of the cultural engineers really doubling down on having people identify in these fragmented subgroups and categories, which is really just a giant divide and conquer smokescreen. The English language is really rife with identification languaging, whereas, uh, you know, like in the Mayan culture, they didn't have anything that translated to I am. So the I am is what has us conflating whatever it is that we're claiming we are with our identity construct, which has us like gripping very tightly to all of these identifiers. Oh, fascinating. I, 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 I'm, now that you're saying it, I'm thinking, uh, of course, individual languages, while they're based on some form of universal grammar, they also are based on and also shaping cultures. And I love the way you phrase it, that language programs consciousness and programs reality. Um, just as a side note, you did mention that um, this concept of saying that, for example, anti-racism gives us more racism, um, was not popular with certain woke um, people that you were working with when you mentioned that you were working on an article breaking down the, the uh, an analysis of naming a group Black Lives Matter, and that ended up you no longer being in a, a connection with that particular website or publication, right? Yes, that is correct. So I have been, I saw around 2012 was when I started to notice like, oh, there's this identitarian op coming in that's doing humanity a major disservice. So it's functioning on multiple levels. One is conflating behaviors, beliefs, uh, tendencies, with isness, right? So think of um, people who opted to walk around with a free face like normal people were dubbed anti-maskers, right? So tapping the ER onto a behavior or a pattern we're witnessing is a cage, it's a trap. So it's a way of creating a subgroup based on you know what we believe what we buy into we see it with flat earther we see it with climate change denier right tapping ta we tack on the er onto these things and then we create an identity construct for these groups that we're wanting to marginalize so that's one way in which it's working now take the those who are self-identifying as say an anti-sexist right so i'm not identifying as someone who's working for gender equality or who is lit up by gender equality, I would be defining myself by what I don't like, by what repels me, by what I'm fighting against. But by tethering myself to that thing that I'm allegedly rejecting, A, it creates a quantum entanglement between that thing and myself where I need that thing as to define myself and therefore i'm going to create more of that thing because that's how i've set up my identity right like mm -hmm. language shapes it's all attention right like where are we focusing our attention so if i'm focusing my attention on sexism as a self-proclaimed anti-sexist then that is the filter through which my subconscious mind is going to interpret reality therefore i'm going to take a thousand neutral instances a day and see if there's any way I could shove them into this lens of perception called sexism, because as an anti-sexist, I need sexism to rail against to have existential validity in this culture, because that's how I'm defining myself. Mm. When, when I first heard you describe this, it, not in, you gave a lot more detail now, it reminded me of a quote by... Um, Buck, Mr. Fuller, who said you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And when I heard your words and then I juxtaposed them with that, I found myself um, calling myself out, recognizing that even like you gave the example of how the term anti-masker was imposed upon a group of people. But we, as quote-unquote anti-maskers, didn't reject it and actually wore that proudly and defended it vehemently. And we just played our role in a predetermined script that we weren't even aware was happening. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a trap. And I, I love that you caught that. Um, I, I did a show with Charles Eisenstein a couple of months ago, and he was like, I am an anti-vaxxer. And, and I was saying, no, you're not, because if you're claiming to be an anti-vaxxer, then we're setting up vaccines to be the baseline normal reality. We're normalizing it 
by defining ourselves in opposition to it. Um, and that's the trap which gets us stuck in this kind of binary. Um, and there's no, like then we're stuck in the paradigm of the oppressors instead of saying, I'm not playing that game. I'm just a normal human moving through my life, trusting in my immune system and not buying into those labels that set us up to be anti and pro, which then generates and engineers a whole bunch of contrived conflict that doesn't have to be there. Yeah, and, and distracts us from the powers that shouldn't be of what they're doing because we're too busy fighting with each other. Um, so when you talk about that you help and coach and teach people about how language creates reality and how to be more aware of perhaps the traps that they're falling into, what would you say to someone who's who uh, proudly calls themselves an anti-racist or anti-sexist, how they could express that sentiment in a way that was more individualized perhaps, but more productive and not um, requiring the existence of this evil in order for them to be validated? Mm, it's a great question. And if you're open, before I jump into it, are you open to a languaging reflection on something you said before that? Absolutely. Yeah, please. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for being open. So even powers that shouldn't be, and I totally appreciate your awareness and your consciousness around that phrase, we're still validating that they are in power now, right? Mm. Um, and so while I, I completely love the edit, I would encourage you to feel into what it feels like to say the powers that were, wherein we're putting any power they have in the past and we're not ratifying it in the present moment. Ah, oh, I love that. <laughs> I, I, just speaking that into existence, it, it takes, it feels to me like that takes a certain amount of audacity and optimism, but what, what, what more do we need than audacity and optimism? So thank you very much for that. And as we're chatting, I am 100% open to any type of input that you could give on what I casually or even mindlessly use on a regular basis in my language. Cause I, I, I'm always looking to, to, uh, catch myself on this and, and evolve. So thank you for that. And please feel free to jump in at, at any point to, to, to offer some input to me. Yes. And I, and I extend the same, the, the same ask to you because I am also still in the process of mastering my languaging and it's only in conversation, not only, and conversation is so helpful because we have extra ears on one another. So thank you for being open to that. To oh, answer, to answer your question, um, so I think first and foremost, it's really important for us to understand that a lot of the people who are buying into the anti-racist, anti-sexist narrative are under mind control, right? So um, it's going to be a little bit of a different approach than, say, you and I are talking, where we have full access to our critical thinking capabilities and the humility to admit that we might not know everything about everything. So there is something in that mind control that renders people unwilling, but where I've made progress in it is inviting people to close their eyes and, and I have them say a bunch of words. So I'll have them say, you know, war, peace, aging, eternity, um, racism, and humanity. And then I ask them to say, to let me know, like what, emotions and feelings and sensations are you observing in your body as you're enunciating each of these words because those frequencies as we say them are programming our own physical body emotional body psychological body energetic body as well as those of anyone in earshot as well as our collective reality construct by way of the morphogenetic field so when i have people do it this way when they say racism or sexism, it'll be a wash of like sadness, rage, you know, all these feelings. And it's like, okay, so notice when you're defining yourself with these words, you're activating those frequencies in your own body, which are degrading all of those bodies that I mentioned. So it's generally only when people have that physical experience of uttering racism or sexism without the anti you know, without knowing where I'm leading them, that they can have the physical experience of how damaging that is um, to, to say and to identify with. Wow, that that's fascinating. And, and it 
remind it makes me think of how a lot of people over the past two and a half years who have um, come to coalesce around the general concept of challenging the COVID narrative um, identify as free thinkers. So would you say that like a word like free would uh, you know somatically like in your body would would bring a positive um, connotation and maybe uh, joy as opposed to the sadness of of any type of oppression would you think of free thinker as a more positive or productive way of describing yourself rather than say anti-max masker or anti-vaxxer 100 percent, 100 percent um and and I you know I like that you that you took it there because it is so personal right so we're all going to have different you know there are the the collective coding that is uh, embedded in all language and we also have our own personal associations that affect it so it's you know ideally we're using language that is consistently uplifting us and inspiring us and yes like for me personally I I I will not identify with any anti because anti you know as we learn through dr david hawkins work in power versus force all anti does is empower and magnify any word that it is modifying so we look at like the world bank defines itself as an anti-poverty group so mm. we can see how well is that working like yeah. <laughs> is, have they eradicated poverty i don't think so yeah you know? so, so again like we'll put anti in front of something and think we're not invoking those frequencies but we're not only invoking those frequencies we're antagonizing those frequencies so that those frequencies will bounce back bigger and more ferociously because they're being challenged by the anti it's it's super ineffective and it also in the same way you know that i invited the shift from powers that shouldn't be to powers that were where it's like i'm not going to ratify any false power i'm also not going to ratify the normalization of these insane um you know enslavement rituals or genocidal rituals i'm not going to ratify them by defining myself in opposition to them they just don't exist in my realm they're not worthy of me to identify around in any way shape or form wow that 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 is really powerful but i would imagine well i'll just speak for myself it's it's very challenging when we are currently um in a social media culture where where the algorithms divide us into groups of pro and anti like their their purpose seems to be to foment conflict and then we we channel our anger into angry terms that like you said seem to only antagonize whatever the anti whatever the word that comes after the hyphen and anti it's like we're just antagonizing it and validating it and verifying it and it reminds me when i was involved with um occupy wall street going back now 11 years ago one of the the insane questions that was constantly being asked by the media is well what do they want what are their demands because now I was in the park, there, there was no singular demand. People were very diverse. But I remember writing at the time saying that be careful about this concept of demands, because if you're making demands to this to this um, corrupt and invalid system, by making a demand of them, you make them valid because you can't have what you want unless the system you're railing against grants it to you. And it's you're, you're just kind of just playing a slightly different role in the same um, play basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, and it was, you know, at the time I, I was writing for the weekly when, for the LA weekly, when Occupy Wall Street really hit and, and similar to the, you know, the criticisms that I was proposing around Black Lives Matter, I was saying this, unless this movement can figure out what they're for, it's a giant time suck. That's only mm -hmm. empowering the very debt enslavement system they're alleging to rail against. There is no change in complaining about what we don't like. It's what is the solution? How would we rather it go? And to organize and galvanize ourselves around the bigger, better, brighter vision. Not, there's no power in the anti. Wow. You look That's at everyone railing against Trump to this day, all it's doing is is strengthening 
him as a concept, him as a being, you know, this railing against as the exact opposite than we think it's doing. Yeah, that is the ideal example. Uh, thank you for that. Because I was pondering that this week because it being election week and thinking how long ago it feels now when he first announced that he was running for president, which was somewhere in 2015. Yep. And my my instincts at the time was that this was just sort of an ego thing, a passing thing. And once he loses a couple of primaries, he'll go do something else and you know have someone ghost write a book about it. But maybe even to his surprise, the 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 way the the um the legacy media immediately jumped on identifying as anti-Trump, shamelessly identifying as anti-Trump, but covering everything he did seemed to fuel him and the people who liked him, or even people who may not have cared much about him, but just wanted to be on the side of the guy who was getting railed on by legacy media. And here we are in 2022, heading into 2023, and it's bearing out everything you just said. You can argue that he's hasn't lost really any of his power or popularity. And part of that is being fueled by the people who claim to be against him. A thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, the legacy media and the powers that were, they need Trump, right? We always, they always need an enemy. So they, I don't know that the public understands that they're continued railing on about not even him, but about the misinformation about him is fueling and empowering it. You know, at the time I wasn't I wasn't really following that election all that closely when Trump was first running and with my knowledge of language I knew he's going to win just because of how often I'm hearing his name. Like I don't have to know anything else but the fact that everyone seems to be obsessed with him and loves him and it goes back to like the anti-racist actually loves racism and needs racism. If they don't have racism, they're not going to be on purpose, right? So if, if I'm an, and again, I'll go back to anti-sexism and, and cozy up in the confines of my double X chromosomes. If I'm defining myself as an anti-sexist and I go a whole week without seeing sexism, then I'm failing at my mission. Then I'm a terrible anti-sexist. But if I can manipulate a couple neutral situations and call them sexism and make a big scene and rail against it, now I'm on purpose. So that goes back to that quantum entanglement where I need, I need sexism to exist. And all these people who have set themselves up as anti-Trump, they love Trump. They don't know it, but they're completely dependent on Trump to have something to complain about. Yeah. Wow. That, 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 that's really a, a powerful angle to, to allow yourself to just sit back and, and occupy, where in the sense that, that uh, there's, there's been tens of millions of words, <clears throat> excuse me, written since 2015 about Trump, but nothing along this line. It's, it's, it's just often um, distractions and derailments and deflections, but not along these lines. Because I felt like being involved in activism, um, like street activism at, at points in my life, I sometimes got this sense that, that the activists were caught up in this um, mindset of uh, that losing was, th that always being on the losing side was part of their identity and always gave them that gave them something to rail against. But I, I didn't think of it in the quantum sense that you're talking about it, but I kind of picked up that it's like, I was like, do the people I'm marching with want to win? Because, it, or are they thinking or subconsciously thinking, what will I do if we win? Then what? Like, who am I at that point? And I met plenty of activists who would consciously articulate to me that before they got involved in activism, they kind of had were just floating and they were rudderless and they didn't know what to believe in or what to do with their life. And they just were going through the motions and activism gave them a purpose. And then now that I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking, yeah, so were they unconsciously happy that all the causes that they're fighting for just keep getting bashed and not, you know, what, what, like whatever their rationale as to why Occupy failed, it just fuels them to, quote unquote, try even harder next time and dig even deeper and not really questioning what's their motivation and maybe what are their really deepest values. Yes, totally. And I, I think that's a big piece of it. And, and keep in mind, 
what a long game the social engineers have been playing here. So it took you know, several decades and generations to demoralize the populace to the point where people are not on purpose and don't have a mission. And I think that this would, they wouldn't have been able to pull this off if they didn't have a populace that was so self-esteem deficient and so mission-less. And I see this, I see this in the health freedom movement and I'm, you know, I, I'm such the, the rebel and the contrarian. So it's like, I'm kind of on the outs with, with, with all of them where like, I have a big criticism in the health freedom movement of like, you guys don't want this problem solved because you're on the circuit now and you all are famous and you're all making so much money from your speaking tours. And none of this would be happening if we were really taking care of this. And I've seen a lot of people who I've worked with in this movement like kind of veer off. And right now, you know, there's this big split between virus, no virus. Yeah. And I think that unconsciously this is playing out of like people who suddenly shot to fame are suddenly making a lot of money. And if this gets solved, um, that's all going to come to a screeching halt for them. I, I hate to say it, but I agree. And, and I, the, the schisms are, are developing and it seems like so many different factors, all the stuff you mentioned, then you get people who get rise just a little bit above the pack with a with an interesting viewpoint and then the people still in the pack start calling them controlled opposition and then they don't want to pay attention to them and i as someone who comes out of left activism and now i've kind of the left has abandoned me i look at it that and now i'm in this this health freedom movement with a that that is that is called right wing by the outside but it's kind of mixed but i see so many of the same tendencies and you just kind of nailed it right there and and it's it's disconcerting it it's um i i was going to ask this towards the end but it kind of leads me in it's too it's too um perfect to ask you this but from from all your work and contemplation doing this do you foresee in some reasonable time period that humans collectively the majority of humans could get to the point where they can they can be just laughing at propaganda and public relations because it is laughable once it's once it's made transparent or do you see like artificial in intelligence as the final straw in terms of keeping human beings under the thumb of propaganda or was it a strategic mistake by the parasite class that they they overplayed their hand and more and more and more people are kind of saying like, wait a second, this doesn't make sense. Even if two years ago they were lining up for jabs. Mm, it's such a great question. And I really, I really like the way that you worded it. Um, Thank you. No, I do think they overplayed their hand. I think they pulled this up too soon because of Trump. I think it forced them into it before they were ready. And I think that they've gone so over, the top. That being said, like there are so many moments where I'm like, okay, the like it's game over. Like this is so obvious, and I, I've probably said that at least a dozen times, and that hasn't happened. But I yeah. also know that you know, like my work at first, I was incredibly censored because I wrote Pandemic Two Indoctrination, and I was being really vocal about all of this stuff. Then with the shadow banning and the censorship, I pulled back and nothing gets me censored more than teaching people about propaganda and how to empower themselves, which clues me into the fact that I'm on the right track. Yes. And, and I noticed, you know, I, I was teaching homeschool last year and my homeschool students, they were mixed. You know, some of them we're, we're seeing through the nonsense, you know, and they're young as well. So a lot of it is, is decided by their parents, but then some of them were really kind of on the woke up. And when I'm teaching, I'm not trying to get anyone to think the way I think I'm just teaching them how to think. And it was very encouraging how quickly, once they saw the tricks, especially through music, like once they got how all of the lyrics of their songs were trying to control and disempower them, they snapped out of it really quickly. Nice. So I have faith. Um, it's again, it's just a matter of educating the public and getting through, you know, the thought police barriers to help them see more clearly.
But no, I don't, I don't think AI, I, my perspective is we've already won. It's just third dimensional reality is, is more dense and slow. And it, and it's certainly frustrating and heartbreaking to be, you know, going through the motions while we're waiting for everyone to snap out of it. Yeah. I mean, of course we've already won if, if we call them the powers that were right. Like, exactly. like it's, we've already defined the reality there, but, but like you said, there's a, there might be a, a bit of a lag at times, but, but uh, it's worth, certainly worth waiting for them to catch up. Um, thank, well, thank you for that answer. Um, I, because this is election week, I do want to ask you about something else I've heard you talk about. Um, you've expressed the opinion of how um, unhelpful, bordering on useless, um, candidate debates are when it comes to helping people decide if they want to vote or if they do how to vote. And even just putting aside all the the BS related to voting, like that could, we could talk probably for two hours about that, but just on the concept of televised debates, could you share your thoughts as, as to what you see when you, whenever you take a chance and witness one of them? Mm, yes. And it's very timely because I'm, I'm doing the final edit on my new book, uh, which is actually right in front of me. And I was working on the, de the de debate versus diplomacy section this morning. Um, yeah. So uh, one of the things that I focus on in my work is kind of masculine feminine polarities, right? And there's this severely misunderstood new age notion that, you know, the return of the divine feminine is like a bunch of women wearing chiffon running <laughs> the world. And, you know, it might turn out like that. It might not. When I look at um, the breakdown between masculine and feminine polarities, I'm looking at um, masculine ways of thinking and perceiving and taking action. So, Debate is is very much the masculine shadow. And again, I'm talking about, um, you know, the polarity constructs embedded in physics. I'm not talking about men and women as people with penises and vaginas. But that masculine shadow has people like clinging to their own ideas without indicating that they're hearing the other person's ideas and just like fighting for the superiority of of their own that to me does not indicate um masterful leadership like that doesn't that doesn't indicate any sort of competency for someone to you know run the country and engage other countries and other superpowers for me i want to see if my leaders can dialogue can indicate active listening can hone in on what all of the perspectives involved are vying for hone in on the Venn diagram of crossover between all of those interests and then dialogue with the other leaders involved to come up with win-win solutions that serve the most people. Debate doesn't have anything to do with that. Debate doesn't have to, there's no active listening in debate. There's no honoring that there might be validity to the other person's perspectives or parts of the other per person's perspectives. So it's a very outdated, shadowy, masculine means of determining who, who are, you know, most adept leaders are going to be. To me, the return of the divine feminine would be bringing in that active listening and, you know, seeing, okay, well, what are all of the perspectives involved and, and how can I create a solution that's going to address the most of them? I appreciate that. It's, 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 especially now um, debates have reached the point where you could just tell that the participants have been just grilled to memorize a few catchphrases and lines that will be retweeted the next day, or that will be the short clip on the evening news. And it's, it's just kind of calling each other names. And when I heard you say this on a different podcast, it's, it's like, it, I felt on, inherently you could recognize that debates are just uh, don't serve the purposes of helping us uh, recognize someone's leadership ability. But the way you articulated, I was like, oh, yeah, I see it more clearly now. It's it's high. It, they're rewarding people for certain personality styles that in, in are in. I almost said anti there, are not um, conducive to leadership, to conflict resolution and and mediation and so on. And when I heard you articulate it and just now, it's like, it, yeah, it's it's 
it's actually painfully obvious. It just didn't click. And I started imagining that the active listening would involve what, like our interactions where one candidate might say X, Y, Z, and the other one might say, would you mind if I address how you phrase that? And, and then suddenly they're having a conversation about their perspective, um, how their mindset is about addressing a particular issue instead of worrying about um, what all the all this stuff that these guys typically worry about. So I think that's a, a that's a great starting point to interact with people who are new to this information, I would imagine, because people get very much caught up in debates and they watch them like a reality TV show. Completely, completely. I, you know, I've said that these days the political sphere is on par with dogfighting. Like it's <laughs> that low vibration. We had, you know, it was a, it was a pretty intense election here in New Mexico. We had the Democrat governor who, you know, is a horrible tyrant and I'm not one for name callings, but name calling, but I mean, just like really, really out there. And then we had the Republican candidate and then we had the libertarian who, you know, really knew what was going on, um, but wasn't really getting a lot of media play. And, you know, there was an aspect of me that was like, well, we got to vote, you know, Lujan Grisham out. So it's going to be one of these other candidates. But when I heard them talk, it was more mudslinging. It was more character assassination. Like all three of them were just attacking one another and no one was focusing on, here's my vision, here's what I'm gonna do, here's how it's gonna serve New Mexico. It was just like this kind of five-year-old, like, well, she did this and he did that. And I was like, I can't actually vote for any of them. Like you guys have a lot of evolving to do before I can get behind you as leaders at all. Uh, I can I can imagine, and I, I based on now how I'm getting to know you, it, it, there must be some level of just uh, like your brain starts to rattle when you have the level of self awareness you do towards how language is used and how you would love it to be used and how you're careful about how you use it, and then you see a charade like two well rehearsed politicians just reduced to like kindergarten schoolyard, as you said, it just, it, it must feel almost intolerable to, to witness this when you, when you're acutely aware of how much more helpful this could be. It's, a, a, it's, it's a blessing and a, a curse of what you do because your awareness is a positive thing. I feel like you've lifted my self-awareness in this conversation and it's, it's a wonderful thing to bring to, to all the people you interact with, but then living in a world where there's a fair amount of people who, um, to put it kindly, just neglect that part of their self-awareness, you're you're exposed to so much, so many missed opportunities where actually a, a different use of language could actually have been all that could have made all the difference in the world. And we get we get stuck in these rhythms and routines and traps. Or in the case of politicians, they're just following what their what their gurus and brand makers are telling them what to say. And it's it's quite it's quite a shame because we have, we have such potential as of what we could have and what we are soon to have. Let me let me catch myself there. But, Ooh, I love that. Well done. <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you. You, you can be a proud teacher right there. Um, totally. As we're moving towards wrapping up, I we I feel like we could talk a million other things, but I want to give you a chance for any of the listeners who aren't familiar with your work, I'm sure by now they're like, oh, I want to know more about her. Um, you mentioned Plandemic 2. You mentioned working on a new book. You, you mentioned being a consultant with quantum languishing. You could talk about all of that, any one of that. Just let the listeners know a little bit more about what you're doing. And I will include links in the show notes so they can follow up after hearing you talk. Oh, thanks, Mickey. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, Yes, I am a quantum languaging consultant. So I work with companies and organizations, helping them uplevel their communications culture for more efficacy, impact, productivity, uh, profit, as well as, you know, harmony amongst all of the employees. Um, I, I was doing a lot of quantum languaging coaching. And right now, the only coaching that I'm doing is around the language of healing. So that's working with people with any chronic or degenerative illness, cancer diagnosis, pain, injury, um, and teaching folks 
how to reprogram the body for accelerated healing, optimal health and well-being with our every word. Um, so that is really the crux of what I do is um, I have the unique ability of seeing the energetic frequencies of words and how they are affecting the people around us when we're using language and how they're affecting our collective reality construct at large. So the bulk of what I do is teaching people how language is creating reality and is programming our consciousness. When I'm working with people one-on-one, -on -one, I'm, I'm watching the language and I can see where it's creating distortions in the consciousness and how it's, it's necessary to not just switch up our languaging, right? But to also kind of unravel those knots in our consciousness so that our dendrites are available to make new connections as we're evolving all lang our language. So there is a little bit of a process in that. Um, I write books about quantum languaging. Um, the book that I have out now is called Word Up, Little Languaging Hacks for Big Change. That's available in print, in electronic version, and in audio version. Um, I also have an illustrated guide to propaganda, which features 37 tools, tricks, and techniques that the social engineers use to attempt to manipulate and enslave us. Um, I wrote that for my homeschool kids, so that is a appropriate for teens and grownups alike. The book that I'm finishing right now is called The Language of Betterarchy. And um, this book has taken me five years to write, and it's basically dismantling the myth that patriarchy is the biggest problem we're facing as a global community and that the solution is to place formally marginalized groups on top. I'm challenging the whole, the whole system that alleges that we need there to be losers for there to be winners, that it's okay to mistreat some groups so that other groups can be top dog. It's really time for us to evolve out of that entire hierarchical system, because if any groups are being expected to take short shrift for other groups to quote unquote win, we're all losing. Um, so I, I'm examining in this book um, where hierarchy has been, um, placed in our language in ways that it doesn't need to be. Obviously, organic hierarchy exists, but we are speaking a language of hierarchy, which has us doing the social engineers bidding for them, where, where we're enslaving and disempowering and dividing ourselves with our language. So this book attunes us to the 10 uh, precepts of hierarchical languaging uh, and teaches us the very simple upgrades that move us into betterarchical languaging. Because once we're speaking a language that is vibrating at the frequencies of equality, empowerment, respect, and abundance, then the world that emerges from that language will necessarily reflect all of those qualities. Um, so I'm really excited about that. I'll be finishing yeah. that up in the next few weeks. So, so the word was better archy. Yes. I, so for the first couple of years that I was writing this book, I was calling it the language of heterarchy. But at the more that I studied heterarchy, and I did go into quite a deep dive, I didn't see any large scale implementation of it. Like I, you know, they, it was rumored that the Mayan culture was better, was heterarchical, but they didn't leave any record as to how that was mm. structured. And it ended up like I just started like kind of spinning my wheels trying to figure it out. And I was like, you know what? I don't know if heterarchy is actually the next iteration that we're evolving into. What I do know is that the next iteration is going to be better than what <laughs> we have now. So I'm just going to call it betterarchy and let people who have, you know, more knowledge in that realm figure out the specifics for us. Or if they have more knowledge in that realm, they'll they'll just adopt your new invented words and and entered into the the uh, language because better archy sounded like header archy just having hedda before right like it it then gets into heteropatriarchal heterosex like it gets into these these identifying woke terms that seem to carry some baggage with them but better archy like it's it's automatically just you talk about earlier about um asking people how their body feel when they say uh, a word like 
better is a word that you're just going to feel if someone says how you do and you say better you're evoking positivity and and good energy so i, I love that better Archie. that's why i asked you to clarify i was like hey did you just coin a really cool word but yeah <laughs> that is pretty awesome and actually i, I want to ask you when you said how we're doing the social engineers bidding for them and we uh, uh, unknowingly speak in hierarchical terms could you Give us like one example of something that will that that would make people go, oh wow! I never realized I did that. Um, sure. So, um, should is a great example, right? Because if I say, hey, Mickey, um, you should see this movie I saw last night. I think you'll really like it. When I say should, um, I am implying that I have some sort of authority over you. And mm. that you're kind of beneath me and that I have authority to tell you what to do. If I say, you know, even um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get away from better, but be like better is one. If I say, here's a better idea. If you're like, let's go out for Chinese food. And I'm like, here's a better idea. Let's go out for Italian food. I've just shut you down. I've okay. just said my idea is better than yours. Now, I do have a long caveat about this in the book because that's what I named the book, <laughs> you know, so I want to be clear. But, um, you know, I, I often invoke the image of the, the winner's podium, like in the Olympics. So any languaging that places someone in a higher or lower position is going to, to um activate the amygdala, right? That's that's the fight or flight. Yeah. So whether we're conscious of it or not, when we activate someone's amygdala by inferring that we have power over them, they're going to be defensive, right? They're going to their bloodstream is now flooded with fight or flight hormones. They're now armoring up their emotional body. Um and that that conversational space is not going to be as open cuz I've just inserted a little bit of a power dynamic where there doesn't need to be one. Fascinating. And and the way neurology works, if if you in, unintentionally do that to someone, even a loved one, a couple of times in a row, their amygdala might start just responding to the sound of your voice as a potential fight or flight situation. And you don't even realize that you're in this um, almost antagonistic relationship with someone that you care deeply about simply by following the social engineer's um, cues of how to speak to each other in a hierarchical world and and yeah when you say you should do something it it's something a parent would say to a child which in some cases would be justified but but uh, when when you're talking about two adults speaking should could be considered a benign term but it i personally am really really latching onto the idea of like no it's not a matter of like um, dissecting every single syllable that comes out of your mouth, but it's it's creating a mindset. As you said, it takes a while. Like I could correct the powers that shouldn't be to the powers that were, but it won't click in until with some practice. And then you don't have to analyze as much because your your brain has shifted as to how it views language and how it views language vis-a-vis -vis the people that you care deeply about in your life or, or anybody in your life. So I, I really appreciate this. I I I'm so glad that we connected because this this is what the type of conversation that I was hoping to have and I the fact that you're out there sharing this this mindset this expertise and doing within the realm of healing is just thank you for the work you do and thank you for taking time to come talk with me. Oh, thank you so much for being open to what I'm sharing and thank you for having me on. I, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Mickey. Likewise. Thank you. And uh, let's stay in touch. Absolutely. I'll be back with some closing thoughts after one more word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z again. I trust you're enjoying this episode. And if so, I would really, really appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber for just $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day. You can support this Substack and this podcast. Your help is essential and it's crucial. And it's you who keeps this project going and growing. So thank you for listening. Thank you in advance for becoming a paid subscriber. And please spread the word. And while you're at it, 
please check the show notes for a link to a really kick-ass post-woke t-shirt. The sales have been going up. People are out there showing off what their favorite podcast is. And now it's time for you to join the team. So once again, thank you in advance. And let's get back to the show. Wilmot Reed Hastings Jr. is the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of a little company you may have heard of, Netflix. Hastings has a net worth of roughly $6 billion. Spoiler alert, his great uncle was a man named Edward Bernays, who was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Edward Bernays was a public relations pioneer, one of America's most innovative social engineers, and the author of a 1928 book brazenly entitled Propaganda. Bernays's goal was to take his uncle's works and popularize them into little ditties that housewives and others could relate to. Case in point, in 1929, Bernays was hired by the American Tobacco Company to persuade women to take up cigarette smoking. Bernays' slogan, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet, exploited women's fear of gaining weight, a concern purposefully manufactured through previous advertising and or public relations work by Bernays and others. So while Lucky Strike's sales increased by 300% in the first year of Bernays' campaign, there was still one more barrier he needed to break down. Smoking remained mostly taboo for, quote-unquote, respectable women. This is where some watered-down Freud came in handy. During the 1929 Easter Parade, Bernays had a troop of fashionable ladies flounce down Fifth Avenue, conspicuously puffing on their torches of freedom, as he had called the cigarettes. Bernays augmented this successful stunt by lining up neutral experts to applaud the benefits of smoking, all the while concealing this tobacco company's sponsorship of his activity. It's really no wonder that so many of today's Americans, all across the ideological spectrum, are so easily and willingly duped by fake news and clickbait. In the era of social media and a 24-hour news cycle, we are now exposed to more propaganda than ever before. Today, the progeny of Edward Bernays are continuing to refine and hone their skills. They keep us passive, distracted, and divided, but still inherently trusting those in power. Most Americans are thus trapped inside algorithms that serve as echo chambers to create and reinforce flawed opinions. And talking about Edward Bernays and the manipulative algorithms used today brings us back to Netflix CEO Reed Hastings. Under his watch, Netflix has dramatically changed how we watch movies and TV shows. Their algorithm virtually controls us. We are the intended result of a century-long social experiment, only now they have artificial intelligence to more efficiently condition us. We've willingly surrendered our ability to discern fact from fiction. Even worse, we've surrendered our desire to discern fact from fiction. Pro tip, nothing will change until we truly open our minds, recognize that we are being lied to 24-7, consciously reject the programming, and keep our guard up. <music>